following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning, church. Happy Easter to you all. My name is Chris Martin. I'm the lead pastor here. If I didn't get a chance to say hi to you, thanks for uh, joining us, spending some time this Easter Sunday. Um, But we have a lot of work to do, as we normally do. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to John chapter 20? Uh, We are not a verse-on-screen type of church, and so uh, there are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open a phone or a tablet. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, can be found on page 906 in those hardback black Bibles. But um, like I said this in first service, I, I might lie to you. Okay, but but the book won't. Okay, the Bible will not. So I just want you to check what I'm saying on the Bible. That's why we want you to actually see this and have this in your hands. So John chapter 20 is where we're going to spend our time. As you're turning there, I've got three dates to share with you uh, in our introduction. The first is on on Sunday, January 8th, 2012. The Denver Broncos were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, and my brother is in the room, and he is a Steelers fan. So, um, but the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first game of the NFL playoffs, the AFC Wild Card game. Okay, now in this game, Denver, the Broncos uh, came out real hot. They started with a went into halftime with a twenty to seven lead, um, but the Steelers fought back valiantly in the second half to end regular time of this game, twenty three twenty three. It was tied, forcing overtime. Now, the quarterback for said Denver Broncos at this time was none other than. Tim Tebow. Oh, Tim Tebow. You guys know him? Yeah, okay. Tim Tebow. You remember Tebow? Everybody remember Remember kneeling? It was called Tebowing for that year. Uh, It wasn't called kneeling. It was called Tebowing. Tebow was the great Christian hope for the Denver Broncos before Russell Wilson. And we know how that's gone. Uh... So I, uh, I was at this game. I was at that, that, that playoff game with one of uh, our elders uh, who uh, is in the room and shall not be named. But on that first play of overtime, the first play of overtime, Tim Tebow made one of the one greatest throws of his life. Uh, he had a perfect pass deep down the middle to wide receiver Demarius Thomas for an 80-yard touchdown. And hear me, the stadium erupted. Anybody else, was anybody else in the, in the stadium that day? It, that, everybody, that was your chance to flex, okay? That was your chance to flex right there. It was wild. It was the most electric sport, live sports moment that I've ever witnessed firsthand. I mean, it was unbelievable. Uh, and I turned to John, who was there with me, and I, I think I screamed. I said, are you seeing this? <laughs> and he probably couldn't hear me. He probably couldn't hear me because you couldn't hear anything. But it was wild. Uh, and then the Broncos went on to get crushed the next week by the eventual Super Bowl champion Patriots. But whatever. Okay, that was our moment. That was our Super Bowl. What's You're from Colorado, bro. All right. That's the first date. Second date. On Monday, June 1st, 2015, my wife Marcy gave birth to our daughter, Harper. 
Now, Harper was breech, which means she was the wrong, facing the wrong way in utero, and so we had to have a planned cesarean section, and that meant that uh, for, for that birth, there was no water breaking, okay? There was no uh, waiting for labor to set in. I literally, in my phone, on my Google Calendar, had an event on that day called Have Baby. <laughs> I mean, it was rather leisurely, all things considered, right? I mean, I said, I guess we'll have the baby today. You know, it was just kind of in the plan. Uh, but that day, at that pre-planned time, we got into the operating room. And I was in there. I scrubbed up. I had my little hat and my bonnet thing on. And I'm in the room. And I got to witness one of the most beautiful and simultaneously disturbing moments of my life. I watched them surgically remove my daughter from my wife. And it was a bit of a shock, okay? I mean, it was like a shocking experience. They actually had a nurse in the operating room whose one job was to watch me. <laughs> they called her the dad nurse. <laughs> that, seriously, there's like, I guess enough, enough dads pass out or throw up or do something. Uh, that, that, that's what, the, that, her job was to just watch me. But I was in a bit of shock. I was in a bit of shock. And I think I turned to Marcy and I said, are you seeing this? <laughs> and she said, no, dummy, get back here and hold my hand. <laughs> That's the second date. And then the third date, churches that on a Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, the central claim of Christianity is that on that day, a man who had been confirmed dead got up out of his tomb, walked around, hung out with hundreds of his followers. He ate with them, he taught with them, and 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven. That's what the disciples, that's what the scriptures claim happened. And if that claim is false... If it's false, then, then Christianity is just like any other religion. You can pick it, you can choose it, you can do what you want with it. It's one among many. But if it's true, if Jesus really did resurrect, then it changes everything. It changes everything. I'm calling today's sermon, Are You Seeing This? Are You Seeing This? That's a phrase we say when we see something that's shocking or disturbing or too fantastical to believe. Are you seeing this? An overhyped running back who shouldn't play quarterback, playing quarterback and throwing a pass to win a game that they never should have won. Are you seeing this? A child miraculously by the common grace of modern medicine being born into this world. Are you seeing this? And it's an amazing thing that a Galilean carpenter from almost two millennia ago would bring people like us here in modern times to focus on his resurrection from the dead. It's fascinating. So what I want to do is I want to ask that same question of us today, this same question. Thoughtful, modern, intelligent people, are you seeing this? 
We're gonna talk about how we see the resurrection of Jesus this morning. And we're gonna see this in John chapter 20. Every Sunday here at Fathom, uh, I don't just talk about what I wanna talk about. We talk about what the Bible has to say. And so that's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at John's account of the resurrection. So let's look together at John chapter 20, starting in verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, so it's Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now pause right there. If you're new to the Bible or to Bible study or to church, you need to know some important stuff that makes this make more sense. There were 12 disciples. They would later be known as apostles, but there were 12 followers of Jesus, and one of them was named John. John had a nickname, and his nickname was the one whom Jesus loved. That's his nickname. Now, the interesting thing is that the only place that John is ever called that is right here in the Gospel of John, which was written by John. Okay, so, so, so take that any way you want, okay? Uh, so this woman ran to Simon Peter, Mary ran to Simon Peter, and the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, let's stop right there. This is Mary Magdalene. This woman has been following Jesus for almost three years now. She's heard him preach. She's listened to him teach. She's seen him do miracles, one of which was raising her brother Lazarus from the grave. Okay, so for the last several chapters in this book of John, Jesus has said over and over again to Mary, I'm going to be handed over to the Jewish leaders. I'm going to be handed over to the Jewish leaders. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. But in this moment, she gets to the tomb. She sees the stone is away from the entrance to the tomb. And she says, someone stole the body. Someone stole Jesus. That's her assessment. Now, listen, listen. That makes complete sense to me. That makes complete sense to me. That would have been all of our assessments that morning. If you show up in the dark and a stone is rolled away from the tomb, you too would have thought somebody stole Jesus. She doesn't know what's happening, so she thinks someone stole Jesus. So she decides, I'm going to run to Peter. I'm going to run to the disciples. Now, I, I point this out, this beginning of this passage, because... I want you to know, nobody, not even Jesus' closest followers were expecting what happened. They weren't showing up like, he's not going to be here. They didn't have that attitude. They were shocked. And so she runs. She runs. And now just on a side here, uh, the fact that the very first people, in fact, in John's account, the very first person to bear witness to Jesus' resurrection uh, was a woman, the fact that that happened lends a great deal of credibility to the veracity of this account. Uh, it, it means that this is actually more likely to have actually happened because uh, in that time, in Roman Empire time, okay, uh, there, we have historical records criticizing the early Christian movement, and this is, why, this is one of the reasons why early Romans thought that Christianity couldn't be true. They said things like, how can you trust those irrational and emotional women to be witnesses to an event of this magnitude? 
That's, that's what the majority culture of the Roman Empire thought about women. They did not value the eyewitness accounts of women, but in the gospel narrative, Jesus certainly values women. In fact, the first people who witness his resurrection were women. It's fascinating. Now look at verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple. We know who that is. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now that's curious. (laughs) So John, the writer of this gospel, on maybe the most important day in history, sharing the most important news in history, he wants you to know two things. He records these in our holy scriptures. Two things. One, Jesus loved him more than everyone else. (laughs) But two, he got there first, right? He, He just recorded in our holy scriptures that he outran Peter to get to the tomb first. I mean, leave it to a dude to boast about his own athletic prowess while announcing that the only begotten son of God has risen from the grave. He's just, and I'm pretty quick. That's what he threw in there, okay? Just so you know, that's there. Verse five. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, this is really important. While John is faster, obviously, to get there, he certainly isn't braver. He's not, because he won't even, he's like, he sees the tomb, he's like, I ain't getting in there. You kidding me? But it's interesting that the Greek word here for he saw, he saw that the linen cloths were there. He saw, that Greek word is a word blepo, blepo, okay, blepo. And blepo is a way of seeing in uh, the, the, the Greek in John chapter 20. And it's interesting, it's the first way in our text that people see the resurrection, that they see Jesus. And blepo literally could be translated to glance. He, he, he saw, he, he looked in, he, he glanced in to the tomb, but he doesn't go in. He doesn't go any deeper. He sees, but, but he stops, and it's a glance. It's a glance at Jesus. And listen, I think that that's one of the ways that many people today see Jesus. They see the resurrection. See, I think a lot of people see that something happened back then. I mean, we're still celebrating this thing. So something must have happened. They glance at it, but then they move on. They move on because either they're not interested or, or maybe they just write it off before ever digging any deeper. Just write it off. Some who glance at Jesus say things like this. Hey, I'm really happy and glad that all this works for you. I'm glad this is meaningful for you, but let's be real we know that these are really just simple myths. Simple myths from a pre-scientific era because, hear me, people don't rise from the dead. Right? And it's, it's almost like fanciful. This is all a bit too childish for some. And maybe this is how you are seeing Jesus. You glance at him. You glance and, and you make some sort of judgment but I just want to ask, have you, 
you know, honestly with yourself, if you're really honest, have you ever gone much deeper than just a glance? Have you ever investigated a little bit deeper? So to answer the question, like, are you seeing this? Your answer would be like, yeah, it's just not my thing. Are you seeing this? Yeah, I see it, but it's just not really my thing. And if that's you today, I'm glad that you're here, but I would encourage you for the next, you know, 30 minutes or so, um, I'd like for you to take a deeper look. Listen, it's worth, it's worth taking a deeper look. You can always look a little deeper and still reject it, but it's worth taking a deeper look because for all of our world's progress and education and development over the last 20 centuries, since this time when Mary shows up at the tomb, for all of that that has happened, um, our world, to my eyes, seems just as broken as it's ever been. For everything that we were supposed to be up and to the right on, things still seem a bit chaotic and out of control. Depression and anxiety are at all-time highs. Addiction and substance abuse are astronomical. There's, I mean, read your news every morning. There's suicides, mass shootings, political unrest, wars going on. I mean, for all of the progress that we've made, things are still busted up and broken. So maybe Jesus is worth more than just a glance, more than just a quick glance. Are you seeing this? That's the first way that this text presents you can see Jesus. Now, we're going to keep going. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him. So John just jabs once more, right? Don't, yeah, don't forget, he followed me. He followed me, right? He's just kind of pushing a little bit. It's a little little, you know, John Flex moment. He followed him and he went in the tomb. Now that's Peter. Peter doesn't think twice. He, he leads with his mouth and he just rushes right in. He goes straight into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now this is the second way of seeing Jesus. The text said that Peter saw the cloths, just like John saw the cloths, but it's fascinating. That second saw is a different Greek word. It's not blepo. When it says that Peter saw the cloth, the Greek word there is theoreo. Theoreo, it's where we get words like theorize, to make a theory. And so if blepo was translated a glance, he glanced, then theoreo is to trans, uh, we could translate it to consider. Peter considers what was going on. See, there's like a, almost like a wrestling with, an attempt to make sense of what's going on. It's like, Peter, are you seeing this? And this is why I think there's so much more detail with Peter. Peter is considering, he's thinking about, he's maybe formulizing theories. I mean, we can almost hear it in what is said. Now, um, just so you know, burial uh, customs for this time are, are fascinating. It's interesting to think about this, uh, the way that ancients buried people. For example, Egyptians were famous for embalming bodies. That's why you can go to the museum and see a mummy because they were embalmed, those bodies. Uh, in Greco-Roman culture, they predominantly practiced uh, uh, cremation, so they would cremate and burn their dead. This is why you don't see any Greek mummies, okay? Um, but the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews, God's people, 
they did things differently. They would wrap a body in pounds of linen, cloths, uh, surrounded by very expensive burial spices, uh, primarily to keep the odors down, actually. That's these very expensive spices. And then they would lay the body face up, not in a coffin. They wouldn't put it in a coffin or a sarcophagus like the Egyptians. They would lay the body on the bench, on a bench hewn into uh, the tomb. And I've been to Israel and seen a garden tomb that they think could have been the garden tomb that Jesus was buried in. And it's almost like you have to, it's like a cave. You kind of have to go lower your head, get in there. And you can see there's like a, a little bench seat where they would lay the body. And so what the text says is that Peter goes in and he sees. He sees the cloths lying there. He sees the spices that are there. He sees the face cloth and it's hanging out there, but, but Jesus isn't there. And he gives us all these details and you can almost see his wheels turning. Are you seeing this? Because if, if robbers took the body, why would they dishonor or why wouldn't they take the uh, expensive spices? There's no money in the body. There's money in the spices. Why not take those? If his disciples took the body, why would they dishonor the dead body of Jesus by unwrapping the cloths from the body? Not to mention touching a dead body for a Jewish person is uh, a taboo. They would never practice. They would be unclean. Why would they do this? Additionally, that little mention of the face cloth being folded off by itself is fascinating. What, what's that all about? Because I don't know if you've ever, have you ever stolen something? Uh, you don't have to tell me, okay. Uh, <laughs> The statute of limitations is probably out. But uh, listen, if you've never stole something, you're not, you're, you're not going slow. You're, not, you're, you're going quick. And you're not taking time to like tidy up the scene for the cops to like, oh, let me fold this up. Yeah, put this back. You're, no, it's, if you steal something, it's grab and go. It's scoop and score. You're out of there. You got to get out quick. If you've never stolen anything, you know, God bless your ministry. Good for you. I'm glad for you. <laughs> Just need you to know that your pastor was once arrested for stealing, Okay. So ladies, watch your purses, all right? <laughs> Welcome to Fathom. But, but Peter, he considers all this. He's looking, he's seeing, he's wrestling with what has happened. And I just want to say this. The Christian faith isn't just something where you check your brain at the door. That's, sometimes that's proposed that like you must have faith like blind faith, like dumb faith, like stupid faith to believe these things. And sometimes there's this sense that it's like, well, this is all probably idiotic and it makes no sense. But hey, the people are nice. And so, yeah, I'm in. I'm in on this thing. Like you've got to just like turn off your brain to believe some of these things. But I would propose that our faith is actually a reasoning faith. That's what I think John is pointing out is that Peter, he sees Jesus and he begins to formulate theories and observe and consider to wrestle deeply with these things. So for just a few more minutes, humor me in this and you don't have any option because I've got the face mic and you don't, but humor me. I'd like to theorize for a few minutes. So believe it or not, believe it or not, that the tomb was empty on that Sunday morning is a fairly agreed upon fact that it was empty is fairly agreed upon. Obviously, not everyone believes that uh, Jesus rose from the dead, but just about every scholar worth his salt thinks that a man named Jesus of Nazareth really lived. 
that he was executed by the Romans, that he was buried, and that on the third day, the reports are that the tomb where he had been laid was found empty. On that point, there is not substantial disagreements. But the question for debate is how? How did that tomb get empty? And man, there are all kinds of theories that have been proposed about what happened. I already mentioned one. We call it the stolen body theory. Somebody stole the body. The way that you deal with the stolen body theory is you produce the body. So that's the problem with that theory. But there are other theories, okay? Here's, an, here's one. Uh, it's called the swoon theory, the swoon theory. Uh, and the swoon theory says that maybe, maybe Jesus never died. Maybe he never really died. Maybe he just kind of passed out or went into a coma of sorts. And then, you know, they thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb. But on the third day, he woke up. He just kind of woke up, unwrapped himself from the grave clothes, okay? Uh, Took off his head covering, folded it up, which is a miracle, right? A single guy folding his laundry, just folded that thing up, (laughs) put that away. I mean, at that point, he rolls the sealed uh, boulder away from the cave. Jackie Chan's, all those Roman soldiers, takes them out. Then he travels miles to hundreds of his followers, convinces them that he was, in fact, the resurrected son of God. And then finally, if you didn't know this, he moved to France with Mary Magdalene, had some children that no one knew about, okay, until Tom Hanks figured it all out with the help of Da Vinci. (laughs) That's a theory. That's a theory. Do I need to go into the problems of this theory? I'd be happy to. Thanks for asking, okay? <laughs> there are some holes, not just the obvious ones, and that was the Da Vinci Code, okay? If you've missed that, that it's a book. You can find it at any thrift store, okay? But, um, <laughs> but there are some holes with the swoon theory, real holes, okay? First, the Romans were breathtakingly good at killing people. I mean, breathtakingly good at executions. We have zero historical records in the, the, all of Roman history of anyone ever surviving a Roman crucifixion. Not one. And listen, they killed tons of people by crucifixion. They lined the famous Roman roads with crosses crucifying dissenters. Not one survived. Additionally, The Roman Empire didn't want to mess one up. If you're a Roman soldier, you don't want to mess up a crucifixion because Roman law said that if you pulled someone down before they were dead from the cross, you yourself would be punished by crucifixion. This is why they pierce Jesus' heart or they break crucified people's legs to make sure they're dead because they don't want the same fate. So that's a problem. It's a hole in that theory. Second, um, remember how badly Jesus was beaten before his crucifixion? We talked about this on Friday night. Remember how badly he's beating, beaten. Just imagine that somehow he did survive the crucifixion, like he passed out or he swooned or whatever. Question, how could you think he's going to feel three days later when he wakes up in that dark tomb? If you're, uh, Jesus was 33. If you're over the age of 33, real quick with me, ever wake up hurting and you're like, wait, did I get hurt sleeping? I hurt myself 
while I was unconscious. Like, can you imagine what Jesus just went through? The, the 39 lashes, the crown of thorns parading him through. He was so weak, he couldn't even carry his cross. They had to conscribe somebody else into service to carry it the rest of the way. Not to mention hours hanging on that cross in agony. And then he just happens to pass out three days later, wake up and he feels good enough to get undressed. Fold up that face cloth move a big rock, beat up some guards, and then convince his followers that he is victorious over sin, death, and the grave? I mean, no, he'd have to be in intensive care for weeks, months. This theory just doesn't seem very plausible to me. But it's a theory that people believe. Watch the History Channel. Go, go home and watch the History Channel. You'll hear things like this today. Another theory not the swoon theory, another theory is called the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory says that witnesses to the resurrection all had hallucinations. Like under the great stress and grief of watching their friend and savior die, that, that in, in light of that, they hallucinated that he came back to life. That Jesus had kind of like planted those seeds in their brain and then they hallucinated that. And it's well documented that under grief, under that kind of great grief and strain, visions like that do happen to people. Hallucinations do happen. Problem with that, uh, that, that, that proposition is that hallucinations don't often happen to groups of people. They happen to individuals, but they don't frankly often happen to groups, and yet we have over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And then for those hallucinations to go on for exactly 40 days and then all simultaneously stop, well, that's pretty curious. There's some speculation that goes into this. Plus, once again, the body's the trump card. Just produce the body, and this whole thing is put to sleep. And then there's some fringe theories. Just if you want to really geek out hard on this, there's some fringe theories that I think are fun. Uh, first, the uh, hypnosis theory. It's a real thing. You can read about it. I read about it this week. Uh, all these resurrection visions were a result of a mass hypnosis. Somehow, somebody hypnotized 500 people to say that they saw him alive, like some weird religious magic show or something. I'm, it's a thing. It's a real theory. Another one, the twin theory. This, this one's a gem. Uh, Jesus had a secret twin brother that no one knew about. Or like a doppelganger, like a, like a lookalike going on there who died on the cross. Like there's, like there's Jesus and Jeffrey Christ, right? Like there's just two of them, <laughs> just two that nobody knew about. And that's who died. Jeff, Jeff died. Um, it's, a, it's a real theory. Uh, the big problem with this one is that we have reports that Jesus' mother was actually witness to the crucifixion. And um, moms have the uncanny ability of even recognizing and discerning the differences between identical twins. So if there was an identical twin, it's very unlikely that the mom was like, oh, that must be Jesus. It's just unlikely, unlikely. Guys, here's the thing. To my understanding, there isn't a really good alternative theory out there. If you come up with one, I would love to, I, I really genuinely would love to know what the good alternative theory, and the theory can't be dead people don't rise from the grave, because that's not real evidential theory of what actually transpired 2,000 years ago. No matter how many Discovery Channel specials they put out there telling you that Jesus, in fact, did not rise from the dead. See, at some point, you have to wrestle what happened. You have to wrestle with what happened on that Sunday morning. 
At some point, you have to do what Peter is doing. You have to theorize. If you go beyond the glance and you begin to consider, I have been convinced. And I was a skeptic. But I have been convinced that the best, most plausible, most likely, and in fact, truest theory out there is that he did, in fact, rise from the dead. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? All right, let's finish this up. Look at verse eight with me. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first. Seriously? Three, three times. Three times, he just wants you to know. He's quick. Okay, we get it, John. It's getting out of hand. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. So he goes in finally. And he saw and believed. Now, John gets in the tomb with Peter and the text says that he saw. It's the third time that we've seen this uh, idea that he saw, but it is the third different Greek word for to see. The third one, okay? The Greek word here is horao. Horao, which literally means to heed or to perceive. So here's how I translate it. Oh, I see. Oh, I, I see. But what's really fascinating with that is that they pair with horao, the word pistuo, and pistuo literally means in the Greek, believe. He saw and believed. Oh, I see. And this is the third way that we see Jesus from this text. You can glance, you can consider, but then ultimately the deepest way to see is to believe. To believe. Oh, I see. I see. Now, pistuo is an interesting word because pistuo does mean to believe, but it also has got some deep, rich fabric to it. It means more than that. There's some nuance. So yes, it, it's good to translate it believe, but it also, it can mean to trust, but maybe even deeper, to put your trust in something, to believe in something, to commit your whole life, your whole being into something. And so if I asked people today this question, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, of course I do. But when you say, I believe in Jesus, it's really like you, you say, I believe in Benjamin Franklin. You, you believe in him like, like, like I believe in historical figures. Yeah, I believe that Jesus was a person. I believe that, that he was 2,000 years ago. Maybe I believe that he was uh, you know, crucified and died by the hand of the Romans. But my guess is that when, when, when many people who say they believe in Jesus, what they really mean is they believe about Jesus. They believe some of the facts, some of the data about Jesus. But this word, pastuo, means to believe in Jesus. Not about him, but in him. Believing about and believing in are two significantly different things. They're very different. And the best way I know to illustrate this is an illustration I heard when I first became a Christian. I, was, uh, I, I became a Christian in high school. And so uh, when I first became a Christian, this was the illustration that was shared with me. Um, it's about a chair, a chair. I know, here's the illustration. I know without a shadow of a doubt that you believe in the chair that you're seated in right now. I know that you believe in that chair. Now, hear me. I have no idea what you believe about that chair. 
I don't know what you know about it, okay? I don't know if you know who created that chair. Okay, I don't know if you know who placed that chair there for you to sit in. Probably an intern, okay? Uh, I, I, I don't know if you've sat in that chair before or if you know who sat in that chair before you. I don't know if you know anything about engineering and about, like, we got some students here. Maybe you know how this thing was put together or maybe you know enough math and science to determine how much that chair can actually hold up. I don't know if you believe in the materials. I don't know what, what you understand about the materials of the makeup. Listen, I don't know if you have some past chair hurts. <laughs> like, you had a bad experience with the chair once. And it's just really traumatically affected the way that you deal with chairs. And so it was a big step of faith for you to actually sit down in that chair today. I have no idea, no idea about any of those things, but I know that you believe in it. I know you believe in that chair because you're sitting in it. You're sitting, you're sitting. At some point today, you put your, the, the full weight of who you are and you say, let's go, here we go. Probably unbeknownst to you, you didn't even think about it. And you sat down. How long do you think I can do this? <laughs> That's it. All right. <laughs> Guys, that's what happened with John. He saw, finally gets in there. For all his speedy, quick, Jesus loves me stuff, he got in there. And he saw. And he believed. He put his full weight on this. Now, one more thing. This is very curious. Look at verse nine. He saw and believed, verse nine, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So that's curious. He saw and believed, and yet he didn't understand. It's very strange. Did you know that the Bible presents to us that you can believe fully before you understand? John saw and believed. You can fully believe in Jesus. You can trust in Jesus. You can surrender your life to Jesus. You can be a Christian. You can become a Christian. You can fully believe in Jesus before without fully understanding Jesus. And now hear me. That's great news. Here's why. I've been at this for a few minutes. And there's still things about this book and about this man that I can't quite get my head around. There's things that I'm learning. There's things that I'm growing and There's things that I still fail to understand fully. And you know why that's weird? It's because I'm a professional Christian. Right? You, you know that, don't you? I, you pay me to do this. You pay me to read the Bible and then talk at you and make dumb jokes. That's what you pay me for every single week. But that's, like, that's weird that there's still a bunch of stuff in this book that messes with my mind. So listen, if you have a hard time understanding, there's a little bit of a skeptic in you. Some of you, you don't have that. Some of you just have faith. You're like, you just believe. But some of you, maybe you've got more questions. You're like, well, I'm not so sure about this stuff. What about dinosaurs? Where does that fit into this thing? They thought the world was flat. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what about Jonah? What about Jonah? He got swallowed by a giant fish. Are you serious? You believe this? Or maybe more seriously, what, what about all the suffering? What about all the pain? 
how would a good God let these things happen? These are real questions. If those are your questions, if you've got that skeptic's heart, let me just say something to you. You can make a great disciple of Jesus. You can make a great follower of Christ because these guys didn't understand. They saw and believed and they didn't understand. What didn't they understand? The resurrection of the dead, kind of a big deal. It's kind of the biggest deal and they didn't get it. And yet they saw and believed. Hear me, we put our faith in Jesus not by having all of our questions answered, but by seeing and believing in his resurrection. And then there are good answers to many of life's difficult questions, but hear me, they are not prerequisites for belief. And that's good news. It's good news for me because I haven't gotten this whole thing sorted out yet, and I'm assuming the same is true for you. So my question for us this morning is this. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? C.S. Lewis famously said this. This is his quote. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. That's actually why I had Hadley read that scripture from this mic, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If the, if, if the crucifixion is false, if the dead are not raised, then all of us are still in our sin. We are to be pitied and we're foolish. The Bible's very clear. If this thing didn't actually happen, all this is just so dumb. Why would you even do any of this? If false, it's of no importance. And if true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. He's just kind of saying, hey, it's all or nothing. It's either foolish or it's power. It's either idiocy or it's life-altering in a way that nothing else is. Better than a football game, better than the birth of a child. It's everything. Are you seeing this? So maybe those ways of seeing resonate with you at some level. Have you been glancing at Jesus? This is Easter. We can be real, okay? It's Easter. And many of us have casually seen this Jesus stuff. I went to Easter services for years, for decades almost, before I started really considering stuff. But glancing, you've just kind of casually seen this stuff. And maybe today, just maybe, some things are making some sense. Some things might be clicking. You're asking some questions. You're, you're digging a little deeper. Maybe this feels like, hey, this actually might fit. Maybe you're not glancing. Maybe you've been considering You've actually started theorizing. You've started doing the harder work, the deeper dive. You actually crawled into that tomb and you're like, what is happening in here? What's going on? And maybe you got questions. Maybe you're a bit of a skeptic and you're trying to get all the puzzle pieces sorted out. But deep in your heart, like deep in your heart, you're like, man, I hope this is true. I like want to believe. See, if you're in either of those two places, I just invite you that if if you're feeling those things, I'd invite you to believe, even if you don't understand. I'd invite you to believe, to trust, to, to sit down, to pastel. The way to start that is you just pray, you and God, you just pray, Jesus, I want 
you. I want to see you. I open my heart to you. I give you my life. Show me. I don't understand any of this stuff. Show me who you are. This Easter, you can see Jesus in a new way, in a deeper way, in a life-changing way. So here's how I'll end. These are Jesus' words in Revelation chapter three, and they are for us this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Are you seeing this? Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at a very familiar story for most of us, a story that we have heard told yearly, more often, a story that we all kind of know and and maybe even know very, very well. But as we look at this, we see that there's lots of ways to see this. There's ways even for your first followers to see the resurrection. And Holy Spirit, my prayer is that we would see you with eyes that are clear, that we would see you with hearts that are soft, that we would see you with minds that are reasonable, focused, inquisitive. And Lord, that if we see you, we would see you for who you are, that Jesus, you would reveal yourself to us. We want to see rightly. And so, Father, I pray for my friends here, men and women, students in this room, who are glancing, and even those who are considering. And I would just say, Lord, if there is, through the power of your Holy Spirit, a seed of of desire to believe, I pray that they would take a bold step and say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I want to see you. Maybe this Easter is the beginning of that for them. So Father, thank you for this wonderful text, for this beautiful record, even for all of John's inability to get out of his own way. But it's so helpful for us. And so we worship you today, Jesus, that you didn't stay dead, that on the third day, the Father gave you life again, rose you from the grave, And you appeared to hundreds of witnesses and over the next 40 days confirmed that you really were alive. Only to ascend to the right hand of the Father offering us hope of eternal life in you. Thank you for the gospel today. And so Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.